Today's episode of State of the Game is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. For a free trial and a free audiobook download, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash S-O-G. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for state, O for of, G for game. For a free trial and free audiobook download. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and today we're going to chat about the most important book ever written in golf, The Rules. Ever since the first rules were laid down in 1744, the laws governing the game have been a topic of often heated discussion among those who play. In recent times, the calls to simplify the rules have become ever louder. We've had some high-profile incidents in the professional game, and the USGA president, Glenn Nager, even suggested when he was inaugurated that the rules could be made more straightforward. Well, today we're going to meet two former USGA staffers who've had a genuine attempt at actually achieving that and a fascinating exercise that has been. Before we meet them, though, let me first introduce my co-hosts for this episode. As always, Jeff Shackelford from the US, just back from the Walker Cup shack. We're going to talk about that after the rules. Uh, welcome to you and looking forward to hearing about the National Golf Links and what unfolded there. Thank you, Rod. And from here in Australia, Mike Clayton. Clayton, it's good to have you on board. And can I, before we start, just congratulate you, Clayton, on a terrific performance, I thought, on the Greg Norman documentary on Australian Story. That must have been an interesting thing to film, and I thought you came across fantastically. Thanks, Ray. That was fun to do. I know they've spent a long time on that show, maybe a year since Christine Taylor first rang me, the producer, so it turned out well. For, I mean, and some golfers criticised it because it was, you know, a lot of it was stuff they already knew, but largely it's a feel-good show, and for people who don't play golf or know much about golf, and it did that pretty well, I think. I tend to agree. Wouldn't it be a nightmare as a producer trying to produce something about golf uh, if you're not a golfer? <laughs> because there's just, it's almost impossible to get it right, but I agree. I thought it was yeah. fabulous. But I really thought, for mine, and I'm, I'm not saying it just because I, I thought you were the best, uh, you made the best contribution of all of those who spoke. So I thought, Greg, I thought Greg's sister was great. <laughs> she she was sure terrific. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, uh, sure she was good. She was good. Indeed. We'll have a chat about that again, uh, as I said, uh, after we've had a chat to our uh, two important guests today. As I mentioned in the intro, we're meeting today David Hayes and John Morissette. David and John both spent many years working in the USGA rules department, and between them, they've probably heard almost every suggestion imaginable to improve the rules of golf. Well, since leaving the USGA, the two of them put their heads together and decided they might have a genuine crack at actually trying to simplify the rules of the game. And they're with us today to tell us why two otherwise seemingly sane men would take on such a project. John, David, a welcome to you both. Thank you, Rod. Thanks for having us. No, not at all. It'll be a pleasure. John, have we still got you? Oh, we might have lost John by the look of it. I... We have. Stand by. I'll get John back. While I'm getting John back there, uh, David Hayes, could you maybe just give us a, a thumbnail sketch of how this project started? It, it's no small um, no small thing to tackle trying to, uh, to read through the rules of golf. Have you two just got too much time on your hands? Well, perhaps. That's certainly what uh, people have said. Uh, but I, I think with any, uh, with any job, there are things that you wish you had been able to accomplish while you were doing it. And so John and I had a few 
had a few ideas kicking around uh, that were left over from when we worked together. And uh, as you said, many people have suggestions and we, we wanted to see how those suggestions would play out uh, when actually putting a rules code together. Because, of course, people aren't backward in making those suggestions, are they, David? Well, many times they're, I guess you, you could say they're sort of half-baked because the suggestion is, is too small. You can't poke the rules in one area without, uh, without seeing what the ripple effect is in the rest of the code. And so oftentimes... Uh, you'll hear suggestions from people such as Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman, but they they give you one very small suggestion and they don't look at how it would affect other aspects. But David, they're famous. Surely that counts for something. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're just they're kidding famous, and, yeah, <laughs> that's right. and that's why people listen to their suggestions. Well, that's, that's exactly right. Just getting John back on the phone. John Morris said, oh, no, he's not back with us just yet because I wanted to ask him about, uh, well, you can probably talk to this, while we're waiting for John, the frustration within the US. Hello, John. Hello, it's John. Yes, John, it's Rod again. Sorry, we're just talking to uh, talking to David when we lost you there. Um, David, I was going to ask you about uh, the frustration when you're working within the rules department because we see an incident like, let's take, for example, well, there was the Tiger Woods one this year at the Masters. The Dustin Johnson one, I think, is probably a good one as well from a couple of years ago at Whistling Straits. Uh, and the outcry when these sorts of rules things happen. Uh, when you're within the rules department, what's the frustration like when you hear some of the incorrect things that are said and some of the vitriol that's directed towards those who really are just doing their jobs? Well, it, it is very frustrating, especially uh, to take the Johnson uh, case. I thought uh, Mark Wilson, who spoke for the PGA, uh, did, an, did an excellent job uh, talking about the fact that the PGA had made it clear to the players that all of those sandy areas were, in fact, bunkers, which is the same way the USGA treated them at the Senior Open, which John and I both uh, officiated at. And they did such a good job at, I guess, not saying anything uh, bad about the player that they end up looking bad, and that's very frustrating. Because, of course, John, the truth of that one, and I think Shaq pointed it out a couple of times on the show around that time when we chatted, Really, that was the fault of Dustin Johnson for not having read the rule sheet, which he sort of publicly admitted. How often does that sort of thing happen, John? And how much of the blame can we lay at the feet of the rules as opposed to those who are playing the game? Uh, well, you know, there's, you know, you know, tournament officials go to great lengths to write the uh, local rule sheet for each tournament in great detail in hopes of covering everything. So should something unfortunate like, unfortunate like that happen, it, uh, it's uh, black and white uh, what the result is. However, uh, from experience on the first tee, you know, you, you give players local rule sheets and they, you know, just wad it up, stick it in their golf, golf bag, and it's the rare player who will take the time uh, to read the local rules, and, uh, and which which is frustrating. But on the other hand, it's something you have to do, and it, you know, makes you. You know, respect the player, uh, the people who do uh, realize the importance of the local rules and take the time to read them. And, you know, perhaps after the Dustin Johnson incident uh, that happened, and maybe more players, you know, paid attention to the 
rule sheet they're given on, on the uh, uh, first tee. Or more likely, more, more administrators made it more clear to the players that <laughs> the players didn't have to do anything else. Uh, that aside, John, um, and this is, I suppose, the, is what this is all about. We, we, of course, tend to see the rules in the limelight in the professional game and generally when something awkward or untoward happens. For the most part, you say the two of you in your introduction to the website uh, where you've laid out two sets of rules, in fact, that as USGA staffers, you were pretty sceptical about people who'd come to you and say, we've got an idea to make the rules better. As a general rule, are the rules as they stand pretty good? Or in fact, do we need to make them simpler for everybody who plays the game? I think that's you know the starting point, but obviously uh, the project that Dave and I worked on is based on the presumption that the rules should be simpler. But uh, you know the starting point is you know what you just said is do the rules of golf need to be uh, more simple? And you know one way to look at it is if the rules were more simple, easier to understand, easier to read. Uh, would players still? make an effort or make, would they make more of an effort to learn the rules or do some players, you know, they'll have with there's continued attitude that, uh, you know, say at a professional level, Mike can comment on this, you know, often, you know, players take the approach that here they played off. The officials are here to help me apply the rules. And uh, sometimes it doesn't always, uh, I don't necessarily need to know the rules, but when the question arises, I can uh, call for rules official. So part of the question is, you know, would people still make an effort to learn a simpler code of rules? You know, would it accomplish much? Would it help eliminate some, uh, you know, somewhat uh, some penalties that might seem to be obscure uh, to people? And uh, would it just help uh, a better understanding of the of the game in general? And that's a you know, those are pretty big questions uh, to start with. And, and you know, you know, in one point with, you know, with golf uh, poised to uh, enter the Olympics in 2016, there's certainly the hope that as a result of that, golf will become more popular globally. Uh, so there's uh, the question of whether players in countries where golf is not a dominant sport. So there's a question of whether, uh, you know, in countries where golf is a developing sport, if you give them a rules book, uh, you know, are they going to be able to read that, read the current rules book and say, oh, okay, I get it. This is golf. This is how you play golf. And, you know, I think there's a fair chance that you're completely new to golf, that that would be a pretty tall task. So the simpler rules could go a long way towards helping uh, golf in developing countries and helping beginners perhaps be less intimidated uh, by uh, starting out uh, in golf. David Hayes, was there, did you note when you were at the USGA, was there a, a one or two common rules complaints that you would get all the time? One that I hear often, for example, is um, why can't I get a free drop out of a divot in the fairway? It's not fair. I've hit my ball on the fairway. It's landed in somebody else's divot. Why don't I get a free drop? Are there sort of three or four common ones that keep occurring? That's certainly one of them, Rod, really, from divot holes. Uh, players certainly don't like the stroke and distance penalty for out-of-bounds and lost balls. Uh, those, are, those are probably the main ones. Um, maybe the opportunity to declare a club out of play before starting the round 
when you show up at the tee with uh, 18 clubs or so. That, and, and were they your starting point for this project, these seven ones? Because you must, I must say, and I think Jack Nicholas is one who's talked about the stroke and distance one with the OB in particular, they do seem to be the sort of things where you could quite simply say, why do we have different rules for when the ball gets lost in a hazard as opposed to off the golf course? Was that your starting point, some of those common ones that came up? Well, they were certainly in our heads, uh, and that's why I mentioned the declaring a club out of play. That was uh, um, that was a change that we put in there, uh, uh, mainly because we had heard the complaint so many times. Um, as for the, the as for the divot holes, I don't think you're ever going to convince either John or I, uh, and certainly not me. I don't want to speak for him, but you'll never you'll never convince me that uh, that you should get relief from a divot hole. John, we've lost John again. I will try to get him back, but I'm not convinced that his line is uh, is uh, doing particularly well uh, for us today. Um, David, so you, you, the two of you had this idea. I don't know at what point. At what point does one say to the other, let's have a crack at making the rules easier and write sort of a new rules book, and the other one says, yeah, that's a good idea. How, how does that actually happen? Why didn't one of you yeah, say, Yeah, actually, it, John, it was John who approached me. Because so, he's not um, here, and... you're going to blame him. Right. Well, maybe. Or um, I have to say, I, I was thinking, sort of anticipating this question. I've got to tell you that I I enjoyed spending some time with John so much that when we worked together, that frankly, if he had called me and asked me to help him clean out his garage, I probably would have agreed to a, a project like that as well. But it, it, it was certainly a good uh, intellectual exercise for us to uh, to pick through the book and only have to compromise with each other rather than the usual 11-member uh, joint rules committee. Because, of course, this is the other thing. The rules are looked at on a regular basis, aren't they? So all of these things that you've oh, yes, uh, been discussed uh, before. Yeah, we would have two or three USGA meetings and two meetings a year with the RNA, uh, and they were at the same time having... Uh, three to four, I believe, they would have shorter but more frequent meetings mm. of their committee. Do you think, do you feel that there is a genuine um, momentum to try and make the rules? I was really interested, Glenn Nager in his first speech, which I think Shaq attended just after he became the president, was one of the things yeah. he pointed out. It went completely under the radar, but he said, I mean, he's a lawyer, wanting to simplify anything would be against the grain with him, I would think, but he said he thought there was <laughs> rooms to, to make the rules. Yeah. Do you think there's a genuine um, sort of movement within the corridors of power that count to maybe simplify the rules? I, I do. Um, I think you know, we learned, um, and we've learned even further with uh, the discussion that's gone on on our website, that um, the people are interested in, in a change to the rules, but they're not all that willing to make compromises. They're, they they want revision as long as everything stays the same, which... <laughs> Mm. Which wasn't really a surprise to us. Uh, you know, our our main goal was to see what compromises were necessary to affect simplification. And um, many people on our on our discussion site have kind of rejected uh, the the changes that we wanted to make to the game. Okay, I'm just going to try and get John back in because there's a question. Uh, what, which David? Which of those in particular uh, would those be? Well. It, which, which the, you know the big the biggest change we made, Jeff, I think, was the points based uh, system in Code Two, and yeah. I think a lot of people, is, <laughs> Australians, I would expect, would accept that more willingly uh, because of the amount of stableford that they play already. But uh, 
Americans seem uh, seem to want to hang on to their individual stroke play. It's a cultural thing, that David, isn't it? It's always su- surprised me, and most Australians, I think, that at an amateur level in America, that you play stroke all the time. In Australia, we play it once a month, and we dread that day because it takes so long <laughs> to get <laughs> right. And I think Americans, if they if they played more stable for would realize the big benefit of it. Um, it's really nice to be able to pick up your golf ball and not have to write down an eight or a nine. I, I find it uh, the, a, a great uh, a great fix for my bad swings. And all, all too common as well. John Morris said, I wanted to ask you about this. And David, touching it there, you've got code one and code two. You've actually come up with two simplified sets of rules. John Morris said, can you explain to us the difference between code one and code two? And then I might get you to explain. Oh, well, we came up with sets of rules because almost when we were finished the first set, uh, we talked with uh, Glenn Nager, the president of the USGA, and learned from him that the USGA and RNA were uh, actually undertaking a similar project or a similar look at the rules uh, for the long term. And after talking with Glenn, you know, we wondered if, in fact, we'd gone far enough with code, t- code one or what's now called code one, and we decided we hadn't. Uh, and uh, therefore, we decided let's finish code one and try something more dramatic uh, with code two. And as you were just discussing, the, the main difference is the point system and the rules changes that can flow uh, through that the simplicity that the uh, point system allows that the uh, current stroke play rules uh, do not allow. So just, well, can you lay those out for us? No, I haven't read the, about the point system uh, in detail. So if you could just explain, are you simply proposing that stable have become the main form of amateur play or is there something more to it than that? Well, I, the, the, the uh, idea is for everybody uh, to use, uh, to play under the same point system, whether it's the club level or the uh, national or international level. And again, part, a lot of the thinking is, you know, as you were discussing, the appeals of Stableford are that it still allows a great number of players to play against each other concurrently, but uh, keep up the hope of having a reasonable pace of play where everybody doesn't necessarily have to hold out. If you have, if you have a bad hole, just pick up, go to the next hole, don't earn any points. So if you carry that through throughout the rules, uh, all of a sudden now the general penalty can often change from, say, a two-stroke penalty to simply uh, earning no points for that hole. So if you breach a rule, somewhat as is the case in match play today, you just pick up and go to the next hole. And you you think about what that can do in terms of simplifying the game as well as uh, helping the pace of play. Wow. And so are you proposing, David Hayes, and I must say I'm finding this a bit confronting, that the US Open might be played under a Stableford-type system? Well... As we said in our introduction, we we're against bifurcation in general. We we aren't suggesting our rules as a simplified set of rules for club golfers. We're just suggesting them as the rules of golf. Now, do we realistically are we waking up every morning expecting the executive committee to call us to come in and uh, and the, adopt our rules? Um, in total, no, not really. <laughs> but that that was our point, our purpose. Well, look, and I suppose it's important for the discussion, isn't it, David, and for, for genuine debate to throw up 
genuinely, radically different ideas of how the game could look. Because, of course, we're those of us who are golfers and have played for a long time accept the rules as we've come to know them and don't tend to challenge the notion. But golf could be a completely different game, couldn't it, with a different set of rules? Absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, Fascinating. Clay, uh, can, I, yeah. can I ask a quick question, Ron? Um, on that topic, you mentioned uh, you're not waiting for a phone call, but... And, I, and without breaching any any uh, confidences or anything like that, I'm just curious what kind of reaction you've gotten from the people who are in the process of trying to simplify the rules. Uh, I know you said there's some comment on the site, but have you gotten anything that that uh, you can share with us in terms of reaction? Oh, well, Jeff, I certainly, you know, we, Dave and I, worked with uh, the USGA and kept them abreast of our projects, in part because we wanted to make sure that they knew that we were not at all trying to upstage them or anything. We were undertaking this you know, largely as an academic project, uh, and you know that we and we were just curious where it would uh, take us. And you know, so we discussed with the USGA, but we have not heard any uh, specific comments from them. And that's one thing that's interesting that they along with the RNA are undertaking a similar project. And, you know, David and I have absolutely no idea uh, the discussions that have gone on in the likely direction that that will take. And it'll be extremely interesting to see, you know, if there are many or any uh, things in common between what they produce and what, what we have produced. It's, uh, mm. you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. The two of you, you've developed code one and code two. Do we have a favorite or are they like children, David Hayes? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think uh, I would certainly say Code 2 uh, this is, is the my favorite. This is the radical one. This right. Is, the, is it dumbed down golf or should we not think about it? Is that what it is? Is it dumbed Well, down? I don't think so. And that was, that was what I was certainly afraid of was that we, that we would have to dumb down the game. Um, as John pointed out before, it, it's really the benefit we get from – Treating each hole as a separate competition, the benefit we get to the uh, to the simplified penalty structure, and I don't think that's dumbing down. That's just treating them independently, as John said, like match play. Can you just it's, just explain the point system to me very quickly? Is, is it the same as our save with par is two points, birdie is three points, bogey is one point? Is that the? Uh, I believe our table is. Uh, She's, you're going to make me look this up, I think. Um, <laughs> it's, you than me. Yeah. <laughs> God forbid I should have to read the rules, David. I'm just playing. <laughs> you're the official. But yeah, I, think our, I think our points table is the same. Uh, we went up to uh, double bogey scoring a point, so we shifted it a little bit uh, in the interest of the beginner golfer. Okay, so if I hit my two so shot out of bounds under that system, then I just don't get any points for the hole. I just walk right. the hole and start mm -hmm. the next Even though, as some have pointed out, it's not unreasonable to think that you could make a, a bogey or a double bogey despite having a ball out of bounds. But uh, for the simplification of the rules, mm. we've gone to the zero points. I think, I think as you put it, don't make 99% of the rules for the 1% chance of <laughs> right. happening. Yeah. Exactly. Which tends to make some sense. John Morris said, have you been surprised by the feedback you've got? Has it been predominantly positive, negative, or has it just been discussion? What did you expect and what's been the, the sort of feedback? Um, had well, I, I, I know that's, uh, Rod, largely why we uh, launched the website, because David and I have been working on this together for about a year and a half. And, you know, frankly, we were just curious as to 
Others would say, if people would say this is crazy, if they point out all sorts of holes uh, in the work and in our thinking or, or what. But I'd say uh, overall, the reception has been uh, quite positive that in general, people think that a simpler set of rules uh, would be good. Uh, and people like a number of the ideas. Probably the biggest uh, uh, pushback we've gotten is on the point system. Uh, you know, some, for example, have said they couldn't imagine a uh, major championship being decided when, you know, the winner doesn't even need to play the 18th hole um, because he, are, he has uh, a sufficient lead in points that he, he doesn't need a score for 18 and whether that, you know, is appropriate. And I guess our reaction to that is that, you know, that's the type of thinking that has led to some complications in the current rules that, you know, if you base all of your rules making on what will, uh, on what, on the best result for an incident that comes up on the 72nd hole of a major championship, then and very you're going to come up with some complicated uh, rules. So sometimes if you just can accept that result and say, okay, this might happen and we'll, we're okay with that result, but there are so many other benefits from having a simpler rule that you know we think those other benefits for the millions of golfers out there outweigh you know what might happen on the 72nd hole of a major and produce what might be perceived by some or many as an odd result. It's, um, I must say that. I'm a bifurcator, so I'm probably not in your camp. I think there should be two sets of rules, but I, I can't see, I can't imagine that being a uh, a desirable outcome. Clates, you've uh, played your whole life under the rules of golf. What do you reckon? Do they need to be simpler? Um, I thought the rules work pretty well, given how complicated the game is. Well, the one rule that always drove me crazy was there was a penalty if your ball moved on the putting green after you addressed it. When, in my experience, having it happened to me about 20 times in my life. It was never my fault. So, you know, I, I, they tried to change the rule and made it worse, I, I think, John, didn't they? But by now it's an argument about whether the wind moves it or not. Well, that's right. And that's an example of something that you could argue to the previous version of the rule, which sounds like you're not a fan of, uh, was unfair. But on the other hand, it was simple. Uh, you know, that if you address the ball and the ball moves, you know, what the ruling is was very easy to understand. And now, in an effort to uh, remove some uh, penalties that aren't appropriate, that they've made the rule a little more complicated and, uh, and have introduced some judgment into the situation. And as a result, there probably won't be as many unwarranted penalties, but there are going to be some tough uh, subjective uh, calls with that. And, you know, it, it's a question of which is preferable. Uh, but in my experience, it was every single time my ball moved, it was never my fault. It had always fallen <laughs> off. And, well, well, it was either the wind or it was, a, you know, the ball had fallen off a little dent in the green or, you know, and the guys I've seen that happen to, it was just, I, I never understood why it couldn't be if your ball moved on the putting green after you addressed it, you replaced it with no penalty. I never understood why, why that wasn't the rule. Well, you see, and, and, and that's a very good point, Mike, and that's one point that we incorporate uh, into the project is that of a moved ball, that if a ball is moved accidentally, you know, whether you kick it while searching for it or, you know, ball moves after on the putting green, you know, isn't the really important 
point that you ultimately replace the ball and play from the right place. You know, why should there be a penalty simply for moving it as long as you ultimately play from the right place? So, so we, we agree with you, and we made that change. Yeah, well, I guess the argument through the green is that you can't necessarily replicate the lie, but you clearly can on the putting green. Hands up who's having flashbacks, David and John, standing around arguing with golf players about the rules of yeah. golf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've certainly heard a player say before that it wasn't my fault. Yeah. Um, uh, look, and there's been some awful examples where that's been that's been really penal. I remember the young amateur a couple of years ago at the Masters had it happen to him on the 15th hole, and it was just quite sad to see. But as you say, I mean, it's you get into the emotion of whether the rules should or shouldn't be applied, and then it just becomes becomes mayhem, doesn't it? David Hayes, what do you, what do you see actually happening? I can't imagine that the USGA and the RNA would adopt either Code 1 or Code 2 in any sort of hurry. Do you, is your sense that we'll probably see the rules, pardon me, slowly evolve into a simpler format? Or, or can you see where we might get a, right, the rules changed on, you know, this date and we now have new rules and it's a sort of a clean sweep? Well, I, I think that the fact that uh, Glenn Nager mentioned in his uh, speech that that they have a project going on means that we will see some big jumps, not not large jumps like from the rules of golf to uh, something like our code too, but certainly bigger uh, bigger changes uh, on a faster timetable than we're used to. Mm. John Morissette, have you played the game under both of your new sets of rules, and how did you find the experience as a someone who's devoted a good deal of your life to actually knowing and enforcing the old rules, quote unquote? Well, it, it, it's funny. At, uh, at uh, Christmas last year, when I was with my whole family, toyed with the idea of having having us play under Code Two, and I realized that uh, it would take too long to explain Code Two than uh, than it would take for us to actually play eighteen holes. And, but, but certainly while playing golf and while watching golf on television, you know, you're aware of things and say, oh, okay, well, if code two or code one were in effect, you know, the ruling would be different and the ruling would be such and such. And then you know, stack that step back and say, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing or, or neutral? So, you know, I had, while not actively playing under those, I, you know, it's easy to imagine the various uh, uh, situations and circumstances that would arise. Fantastic. David Hayes and John Morissette, we thank you for joining us today and uh, good luck. We'll, we'll keep an eye on the, on the website and maybe have you back on the show when, if and when the actual rules of the game do start to change. Mm-hmm. Very, very hey, thanks good. for having us. Thank you, Rod. Yeah, no, fantastic. David Hayes and John Morissette there. SimpleGolfRules.com is the website if you're interested uh, in that sort of thing. And uh, Jeff Shackelford, um, what a thing to undertake. <laughs> review of the rules of golf. I don't know if I'd have the time or the or the stomach for it. How do you reckon you'd go? Yeah, and I as as they were talking, I was thinking now that was just two of them who who get along very well uh, doing this and shaping this. Can you imagine when uh, the USGA and the RNA sit down and it, and it's a it's a group of committee people who have all sorts of little little histories and issues over whatever it is anchoring or whatever else they've been discussing. Uh, trying to sort this out, I I, I like uh, David and John's chances of doing this very well, much better than I do uh, the governing bodies. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see because, of course, the other thing that this does, it kind of creates a bit of a, a rod for the governing bodies back in that these two who know what they're doing have come forward with two 
two alternative sets of rules. It does. Anything the USGA and the RNA decide to do differently, people say, well, hang on a minute, why didn't you do the David Hayes and John Morissette thing, which made more sense yeah. in the situation? And, and these aren't exactly, uh, as you, you could tell listening to them, they're, they're, these aren't uh, subversives of the rules world. These are, these are really thoughtful, uh, intelligent uh, people who are respected in the rules community coming up with this. So um, I, it will be interesting uh, and fascinating to see. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think that the process is so complicated that, um, that, that maybe they will be able to, uh, to glean a few things from them. And maybe even, as I said, you know, the, the notion of those two sides sitting down and trying to figure it out, maybe having these guys do this will sort of uh, make it easier for yeah, them. Maybe. Oh. Yeah, maybe. Um, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, Clates and Shaq, today's an exciting day. Our first sort of advertiser uh, on the show, Audible, the, uh, the Internet's leading provider of spoken and audio entertainment information and educational program. These are audio books and uh, audio. Uh, you can listen to, listen to um, programs from Audible on your iPod or your smartphone or your computer, whatever you want. Uh, really interesting sort of idea, Shaq. I think you are actually an Audible subscriber. Is that true? And uh, tell us about your experience with Audible. I haven't signed up as yet, although... Clearly, I'm going to. Um, but tell us about uh, a bit about Audible. Yeah, I am actually. I, I found it through a uh, through a podcast, and uh, I love audiobooks. And I love to uh, yeah, I listen to them in different different places. Okay. Driving. I was going to say, uh, where, where do you listen? Where's your Where's your either uh, if I go for a walk or workout uh, or uh, or um, driving are my favorites. And uh, when you get a really great audiobook, there's nothing quite. Uh, like it, I, I tend to love books by uh, comedians who read their own books. Uh, people like Stephen Colbert and uh, just all sorts of interesting folks who are who do their own, who are very funny at it and, and do it in their voice. But Audible's great. They have people who have they they get professional uh, readers, actors, and uh, I know I've gotten my dad uh, hooked on Audible, and it's uh, it's just an amazing. Service and I, I just do the one credit a month. It's fifteen ninety five, and uh, I get to pick one. And I'm actually a little backlogged at the moment, but uh, but I love them. Well, according to one hundred and fifty thousand titles to choose from, every genre: uh, science, technology, science fiction, fantasy, as you say, comedy. Plenty of golf stuff on there too. I had a look there, uh, Shaq, and there's lots of lots I was of golf shocked. Titles. Mm. I have not. I've never listened to a golf book on Audible, so uh, I went and looked and. Uh, there are there are several that I will recommend um, that I'm going to listen to first, though, before I recommend them. But there was one that stood out that was just a no-brainer uh, to recommend for uh, our first shot at this. And uh, it's not very long. It's only an hour and 27 minutes. But Jack Whitaker uh, reading Harvey Pinnock's uh, uh, Little Red Book, oh, I wow. think, is uh, pretty hard to miss on. And uh, Jack Whitaker is a you know legendary sports broadcaster here in the United States and has an amazing uh, uh, gravitas about his voice and his delivery. So uh, I could just imagine uh, I, I'm, I've already downloaded it. I'm going to be listening to it later on. And so I'm excited about that. But there were a couple I found that are uh, pretty exciting. So I'm, I'm, uh, I did not expect to, uh, to, to find on Audible. I was just stunned. Yeah. I think Bob Rotello, from what I saw, had quite a few on there. Which yeah. He's very popular and, uh, I think he reads his as well. I got to double check, and I have actually years ago, when I was an aspiring player, listened to some of his tapes. Mm. Um, and he is a. I I hope he reads them because he's a fantastic um, presence. He has a voice that you see why players 
talk to him about the game and, and open up to him. He he has just one of those voices and those ways about him that makes you feel good and makes you feel relaxed about uh, whatever issues you're having. He he puts you at ease, and that's uh, and to be able to listen to that is is uh, pretty neat too. I'm going to be interested in the difference having read some of his books to then listen to some of the books and see what the difference is in the experience. And I think it, you know, both will, a bit like movies and books, both will have their place, I suspect. And yes, uh, it'll be. Uh, It'll be interesting. So the way this works is, if you're a listener to the show, if you're in the US and Canada only, unfortunately, we're not, not for those in Australia and outside the US and Canada, but uh, if you go to audiblepodcast.com backslash S for state, O for of, G for game, S-O-G, that's our personal little Audible podcast URL, audiblepodcast.com slash S for Sam, O for Oscar, G for golf. Uh, you can you sign up, you get a free trial um, and you get to download one free audio book. So you can probably have Harvey Penix's Little Red Book or one of the Bob Rotel ones or some of the comedy or the other things that, uh, that Jeff's mentioned there. But give Audible a try, one free, uh, one free download if you're in the US and Canada, audiblepodcast.com slash S-O-G. That's the state of the game, Audible uh, thing. And you can listen to it, as I said, on your podcast, in your car and when you go for a walk. Uh, or wherever you want to. So uh, fantastic stuff. So good to have Audible aboard. And uh, they sponsor a lot of podcasts, don't they, Jeff? You quite often hear the Audible thing on podcasts because I suppose it makes sense. Isn't it? People are listening to podcasts are already in the mobile audio world, aren't they? So That is correct. That is correct. And that's uh, how most people I know who use it have uh, discovered it and love it. And it's uh, for us, yeah, the price of audio books is uh, a little steep. And so when you pay a monthly rate of fifteen ninety five, you save a little. And it's uh, it's just the right amount for me. Although I have, like I said, I have about five credits stacked up. So I'm uh, I'm a little behind in, on mine. But I've I, I've just gotten such great experiences out of out of listening to them. So uh, hundreds of thousands of state of the game listeners go and sign up. Yes, with Audible and understand the joys of. Uh, of audiobooks. On to some more golf topics, gents. Mike Clayton, I wanted to come to you first. We touched on it in the intro, the Greg Norman story. It's been a bit of a, a, a blowback about that. You mentioned to us that it was about a year in the making and that uh, and you found the whole sort of process interesting. When you saw the whole thing cut together, what was your take? Greg Norman, of course, is just an icon here in Australia, well beyond just golf. What was your take on the, the story overall? Uh, I thought it was good. It's an interesting story. I mean, he's obviously, you know, the tragic figure of golf, really, of his generation. How well but, do you know him, Clates, just on a by-the-way, because you're oh, similar ages? Yeah, well, we played a lot when we were kids and younger. I mean, I you know, he's lived in America and I live here, so I don't see him hardly at all. I mean, I know people who know him. and I mean, Greg's certainly a polarizing guy, and he was, it was right at the start when he spoke about the importance of he placed on loyalty. And, you know, I, there, there are people in his life that he, he's, who, who are not in his life anymore, including Bob Harrison, I think, who I know pretty well, who... Around his design business, who is a lovely guy, and so you know that's a, been a feature of Greg's life. Probably is that you know people have gone in and out of it, but um, he lives in a different space, doesn't he? I mean, people with that kind of money and fame, the wealth and the fame, it, it becomes a different world. It seems to me, it's a surreal kind of bubble that they live in. It would yeah. be an odd place to live, I would think. You you couldn't really trust anyone you met for the first time because everybody you meet wants something from you. It would seem to me. Yeah, and I think you know the danger is to not saying Greg did this, but you know you're surrounded by people who are who are afraid to tell you when you're out of line. Yeah, I think that was you know that's something that's liable to happen. Interesting, I had lunch yesterday with Tim Lane, the broadcaster down here, tremendous sports writer, and he thought Greg is the almost the Greek god. It was almost given too much. You know the perfect body, the looks, all the talent. He was, he was just given so much in terms of 
his talent to play the game, but but it was flawed and it was you know it was all like he was given it all, but then it was taken away and it's a bizarre career, Greg. So I'm not quite sure how to put my my finger on it, but. Just on the playing aspect, Clades, you've said it before, but the first time you saw him play, it's the sort of thing that other players would stop and turn heads, wouldn't it, which doesn't come along very often. That, that's how different and how good he was. Well, for Australians, he, you know, we were in awe of everything American when we were kids. It was, you know, I just thought Jack Nicholas hit every shot to four feet and you know, it was hard to imagine how good we thought those guys were because we never saw them play. We just saw their scores and thought, my God, these guys are unbelievable. So, and, and when I first saw Greg, he was the first, Australian player that I'd seen was like um, my image of the way Americans played. Like, my God, here's a guy who can actually play like Jack Nicklaus. And, and it, it was when he was, it was 1974, he was 20 years old, he was 19 years old, and it was like, God, he was incredible. He just smashed it and hit these two irons up in the air over trees for 230 yards. And he was an incredible player. I mean, what a talent he was. So, so when you saw that, you thought, this guy's going to, you know, dominate the game, which he, he did. did it. Well, he did dominate the game outside of the major championships, but he, you know, the the, the one flaw in Greg's record, if you want to call it a flaw, because you know, clearly ninety nine point nine nine percent of pros who ever play golf would love to win two opens and eighty tournaments, but you know, he was uh, he, he was a player who should have been at least where Palmer and Watson and Player and those guys were in terms of the greats of the game with sort of six, seven, eight, nine, ten major championships, but. For whatever reason, it never happened. And, you know, was it the mental flaw? Was it technical flaws? Was it bad luck? Was it, you know, it was a combination of all three at different times? You'd have to think so. Of course, um, Shaq, I know you saw the first part of the thing. You haven't seen the second part. But what's the American take on Greg Norman? I mean, the, what Adam Scott outlined and what Mike Clayton's just outlined there is pretty much the Australian view of Norman, an extraordinary character who just didn't achieve perhaps what he could have or should have, but still iconic in this country and always in this country held up fabulously as a guy who, um, when he lost, lost with dignity, particularly some of those losses that must have been extremely hard to take. What's the American view of Norman? He seems from Australia to have fitted very beautifully into America. How's he, how's he viewed in your part of the world? Oh, I sense he's viewed as one of the great players of the modern era and people uh, here, of course, respect his work as a businessman and... and um, that's very much part of our culture that somebody goes on in their their uh, post athletic career and, and is successful we uh, we tend to uh, forget maybe some of the, the the things they did when they played uh, and yeah the only thing with him you forget is he he, he, he blew a couple uh, several great opportunities to win but um, and there are some who, who focus on that but uh, I just I, he was an iconic player when I was 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 an aspiring golfer so uh, you know, I, I revere his the way he he uh, was just clearly the best player in the world at the time, even if he he didn't uh, come through in certain ways. Players oddly seem to have have a, uh, an odd take on him, and I don't know if that's just because of their interactions with him or or uh, strange little things he says, uh, like the uh, uh, comment to to uh, Corey Pavin after he won at Shinnecock, "Welcome to the club," and. Uh, or the, the, the kind of uh, strange false humility uh, stuff about uh, uh, his brand, and uh, so it's it's um, he's a complicated guy, but all the great ones are complicated. Mm. 
That's interesting, isn't it, Clay? So we don't often talk about the shark's business acumen here in Australia, do we? It's, it's not something we sort of focus on as much, I don't think. I'm just interested to hear Shaq say that. I never give that much of a thought, but it, he's been pretty impressive when it comes to business, hasn't he? He's done better off the golf course than he probably did on it in that way. Yeah, well, he had good advice. He was a friend of Kerry Packers, who was obviously the most successful businessman in Australia. So I'm sure he surrounded himself with good people, and he understood that he had a brand that was marketable and recognisable and you know, the obvious place to go is golf course design. That's probably where he's, I suspect, he's been most successful. But, you know, he's got the wine business and he was into pasta sauce at one time and he's into clothing and just just the Grass? Stuff. Was he still yeah. in the grass? Didn't he come up with his own? Well, business? he, he did. He, he had his own, he got his own turf farm in Florida. So Frank Williams told me that story. They were grassing a golf course summer and he said to Frank, why don't we have a grass farm? Why are we paying these people to sell us grass? Why don't we have our own grass farm? So he went and started his own grass farm. I assume had a fortune out of it, which was actually pretty clever thinking, really. Yeah, well, when you think of it, what's like, what do they call it? Horizontal integration, I think that's called. Yeah. Or is it vertical? It's one of those two where you just end up becoming your own supplier for uh, yeah. for your existing business. An intriguing character, no matter which way you look at it, though, Clates. And uh, I think you know you'll always be you'll always be a source of uh, a source of discussion in here. I guess the one thing, Shaq, that probably stood, well, two things that stood out from the interview were that the shark sat there and said. He doesn't have an ego, and I don't think most people thought that was a particularly <laughs> smart thing to say. And the bad back from the, uh, the 1996 Masters, which was a real revelation. I'd never heard that before. There was a, a really interesting story came out last year where he suggested supposedly to a sports psychologist that he was hitting the ball poorly on the Thursday when he shot 63, kept pulling everything, and just got lucky to shoot nine under, which seems a bizarre sort of a statement to make. But, um, but a bad back apparently on Sunday, which we'd never heard about before. This is sort of quintessential shark, isn't it, Shaq? Yeah, that was a little strange in that it, and it wasn't just that I uh, I woke up that day and it was you know how some days you wake up and you just don't feel right and it was one of those days. No, no, no. It, he actually revealed a new injury and a new component to it, which kind of is um, a little disappointing. I mean, hey, you, you blew it. it. It just it happens. People people choke. It, it goes on. It's a it's a cruel game uh, sometimes, and um, yeah, I, I kind of wish he'd just leave it at that. Interesting, interesting stuff. Let's move on. Uh, you mentioned the course design business there of, uh, of the Sharks, Clates, and uh, from a course architecture point of view, what a segue this is. Shaq, you've just come back from the National Golf Links of America where you watched the Walker Cup, which must have been a fabulous experience. Tell us, uh, tell us about your, uh, your couple of days over there in, uh, in the East. Well, it's our, it's our St. Andrews, uh, except for the fact that it's private. So to get to open the, uh, the, the gates... Well, it hasn't been. They haven't. Yeah. Those gates haven't been open really to the public. Uh, I mean, there've been. I'm sure they've had some. I know they used to have corporate outings, and the place was uh, had some strange times uh, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, but in general, nobody's really seen the place uh, except uh, those who just drive in and look around. And um, so to open the national up, and then to open it up the way they did after 30 years of restoring and getting the course just to the way C.B. McDonald had left it uh, was just, it was incredible. It was incredible. The weather was incredible. The condition of the course was perfect. Uh, the players loved it. Uh, clearly, they were embraced it. The U.S. had nine practice rounds, so um, they they definitely knew it better than the uh, GB&I team, and I think that was a difference. I had rolled my eyes when I heard nine practice rounds, and there were supposed to be a tenth, but they were rained out. That was seemed a little excessive, but it ended up with that golf course, with the intricacies and the design and the 
local knowledge necessary for the greens and and the strategy involved that that actually was uh, beneficial for them and Pretty it was uh, in the end, wasn't it? The Americans won it. I know. It was. Yeah, it was a route. It was it was a good old fashioned route and. Um, uh, the guys just uh, played beautifully, and yeah, yeah, although if you look the match, there were very few blowout matches, and I've thought a little bit about that since the event, and I I, I kind of have to chalk that up. Uh, well, one, they're all very good players, and and a couple of couple guys you watch, you 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 see a future great player there. You could just see their 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 swing. This Garrett Porteous of GB and I team is he looks like a. a 30 year old tour pro i mean he just uh the way he plays the game is swing yeah oh yeah he's just got a beautiful swing and um temperament and um there was one young man uh right reese Pugh, who's uh uh, i didn't get to talk to him more i'd like to have he claims to be a historian and had been boring the team with all sorts of uh, (laughs) historical stuff all week which of course was music to my ears. I thought, how, wow, how neat is that? And uh, I asked him about reading Bernard Darwin because, of course, Bernard Darwin played in the Walker Cup at the National in 1922, 91 years ago. He was uh, there to cover it, and he uh, he was the alternate for the team. It, it, it's not that well known, but he traveled with him, and he got the call when the um, the captain Robert Harris uh, could not could not play, which I've never found out why, what exactly his illness was, but. Uh, Darwin played and won his uh, singles match over William Founds. But I tried to ask Reese Pugh if he knew that, and I, I didn't. He we were ushering him out the room, and um, I, I didn't quite get to um, we'll hear get his full take on that. But we'll get uh, on the show, he can tell us about. Uh, the yeah, maybe we will someday. It's just exciting to hear uh, of a guy under the age of. Well, on the age of 50, really. (laughs) (laughs) Who cares about the history of the game? Well, Clates, this is one of your bugbears, isn't it? You say that the PGA here in Australia, in fact, PGAs around the world, should make it mandatory that young trainees, that there is an element of the traineeship which is about the history of the game. You wrote about it in your column just recently. I did. Yeah, I I was playing the other day with a kid, a pro, and I was talking about Graham Marsh. He looked at me like, blank. (laughs) (laughs) So, what are you... I'm... I think there's so much to learn from you know, guys, players like that, which was my point. It's like there was a guy who was a great driver, who was a tremendous player, who you know, was a school teacher until he was 24 when he turned pro. There's so much you can learn from the careers of these guys and how they managed to get to the top of the game because they all get to the top of the game in, in different ways. David Graham, who was his great rivalry and not a friend certainly, but, and, but contemporary, you know, turned pro as a left-hander at 15 years old and his father said, if you turn pro, I'll never talk to you again, and he never did. And, yeah, you know, so there were aside from Norman, the Norman, the two greatest players of the late seventy, late sixties, early seventies, and eighties generation, who came got to the top of the game completely differently. Who just, you know, David Graham, what a great story he was. I mean, these guys look at you like, who are they? I mean, why did David Graham ever win? Well, apart from playing the greatest round of championship golf ever. I mean, you know, yeah, so, so it just, and it should be part of the certainly the PGA education here is like. You know, write a 500 word essay on the career of Cal Nagel. I mean, just tell us what you know about golf. But because for me, it's you know, it shows they're not particularly interested in the game out, outside of their own play. And I mean, sure, there've been players who've done well who have no interest in the game. But isn't I think that this, what money does to the game, though, Clates? Is that it brings uh, people who, who aren't interested in anything beyond having a capacity yeah. to play and earn some money? Is that well, perhaps, or it's just a lack of interest in it? They're just not interested in the game, so so they take out of it. 
what they can. And, and my experience of watching the young kids of the last few years is that when they don't make it or you know, when it goes badly for them, they just give up. They don't play golf anymore. They don't like the game enough to keep grinding it out. And you know, you know, if you were David Graham, ground through years of poverty and struggle and humiliation and terrible golf, and you know, people laughing at him. And but you know, he he never gave up. And you know, because I think he had a great love for the game and passion for it, and you know, he, he refused to be beaten by it. But too too many kids just they don't love it enough to keep keep trying at it. They just give up. Because they can't make any money, so they just don't play golf anymore at all, which is just bizarre to me. But the point, the other point you made that was interesting, you probably sort of made it there, was that you know, if you were uh, if you were a musician or if you were a yeah. poet or an author, yeah. and you didn't look at the musicians and poets and authors who'd come before to see what made them successful, that would be irresponsible. Yet in golf, we just sort of accept that kids don't bother looking at how guys did it in the past. It's it'd be unthinkable, wouldn't it, to be a violinist and not look at the great violinists of history. Well, that thought really came to me from a, from a friend of mine, a, a tennis coach who has written an unpublished book as yet, letters to a young tennis player. And he made the point about you've got to study the great players of the past. And, I mean, tennis is a slightly different game. But, you know, you've got to understand how they all played and, the, the, you know, the tactics and the, and, the, and the strategies and how they formed their strokes and how they learned the game. And And, and that was really his point was that, it's unfathomable that a great novelist wouldn't have read the great novels or a great violinist wouldn't have studied the great violinists or a great actor wouldn't have studied the great actors. And yet here we have kids who don't even know who David Graham is. I mean, it's just, you know, for me, there's so much to learn from the great players. Mm. And, and let me segue quickly into Jeff Slattery, who's a publisher, he has just re-released with new stuff uh, a book called A Life in Golf, which, which is the about Peter, it was Peter Thompson didn't write it. A friend of ours sat under Peter Thompson's nose with a tape recorder and just spoke to him. And it's a tremendous book about, you know, it's much like, the first book was much like Harvey Penning's Little Red Book and they've redone it with more stuff in it. And it's a great book about, you know, the way to think about the game and study it. And, you know, it was like, I wrote a review of it yesterday for the Golf Australia website. It's like every kid who plays golf should read this because, when I was a kid, I thought everything Peter Thompson wrote was stupid. And, <laughs> really? and why well, he was against appearance money? How was Jack because they were going to come and play if you didn't pay him appearance money? And he was against everything American. And you know, when I was a stupid kid, I thought everything America was great and everything outside America was hopeless. He was against the big ball. Why? I mean, well, how ridiculous was that? And he was, yeah, you know, he spoke about putting bunkers in the middle of the fairways. And of course, as you get older, you realise that. Everything this guy said was he right on. The, you know, there's barely a thing I disagree with him now. I mean, he was right on the money every single time. I think the greatest mind ever to play the game, but he but he never wrote a book. So this was the way of getting him to actually put something down on paper. Having said that, he wrote a lot during his career. He wrote newspaper columns for the age. He wrote prolifically, but he never put it in a book. So, so you know, so these guys have put this stuff in a book, and it's a tremendous education for any young player about how the greatest mind who ever played the game, I think better than Nicholas or Hogan or anyone, how they thought about the game, how they approached it, how they played it, how they, you know, just developed their own games. And Back to the uh, National Golf League. Clates, have you played NGLA? It is one of the iconic golf courses of the world, isn't it? Not, not just America. It is. I, I played there 10 years ago and walked it again last year because it was we were there the week after the Masters and it wasn't open. But um, I think it's my favorite course in America. It might be my favorite course in the world. I think it's, I'm not sure it's the best course in the world, but if there was 
if there was one course I had to go and play, that'd be it. I think probably um, I, because of the history, the you know the design history of it, the fact that McDonald did what he did there. Just the holes, just great fun to play. It's just an amazing place, I think. You know, just you know, I mean, if you ask the average Australian golfer which course do you want to play in America, ninety-nine percent of them say Augusta. I want to play Augusta. I mean, most of them have never heard of the National Golf Links of America. Yet, you know, it would be way at the top of my list to play in America. Now, you said something really interesting there that uh, it might not be the best course, but it's the most fun course. Explain that to me. How can the best course not be the most fun course or the most fun course not be the best course? Well, maybe. Uh, well, uh, Pine Valley's fun too, and it's university. Well, well, it's regarded as the best course in America, and it's, you know, it's hard to find a course that has 18 great holes like Pine Valley does. Uh, but it's brutally difficult, and I mean, I found it fun, but it's certainly not fun for anyone over a ten or twelve handicap. It's not, you know, it's unashamedly not really designed for them, and it's certainly not playable for them. So, in, in terms of fun, it's not fun because you can't go and play with a twenty market and enjoy it because you're looking for balls all day. But you can go and play the old course, or you can go and play the national golf links, and that's never the case. You can just you can play golf with, you know, your putter a lot of the way, and. So, so in that sense, it's more fun because you can play it with a much wider and diverse range of people. And, uh, and, and I, I'm not sure, Jeff, you know it probably better than me, but there, there are probably more strategic options at the National Golf Links. There are more ways to play more holes there than, than, than Pine Valley where. Oh, even, you know. infinitely more. Yeah. Yeah, infinitely more. How did it stand up to such good players, Shaq? I'm always intrigued by and particularly modern young players who tend to feed on a pretty one-dimensional game because that's what they're going to face when they turn professional. It's high and long and and predominantly straight. How did the test stand up and how did the players react to, I imagine, a golf course that asked them a lot of different questions to what they might be used to? They, they really didn't provide us any profound or deep insights but they just all said they loved it and uh, loved playing it and I think having so many practice rounds allowed for that because there are some really really quirky um, offbeat features there that they are just not used to and I'm sure the first couple of rounds they were thinking what on earth are we doing here Uh, when they were playing well the the second and third holes are just well third holes yeah Uh, the the, uh, Sahara and the Alps holes um the sixteenth hole. The sixteenth hole is just tremendous. The setup of it was just just deplorable. They added a new tee, and and they had these amazing weather predictions. And on Sunday, it said it was going to be into the wind, and they still insisted on using this back tee. So, think about uh, the windmill. You've probably seen some of the photos, and the green sits right below the windmill, and it's a punch bowl green. It's blind. It's a blind second shot. Well. The tee shot is essentially semi-blind as well, and and on Sunday they couldn't even get up to the top of the first uh, knob, so they had a double-blind second shot, and that was rather silly. But the match was over by the time most of them got there, and so nobody really pointed out what a a screw-up that was. Um, But the the hole itself is tremendous. The fairway is 100 yards wide, and yet on top of this this knob is about a 10- to 12-yard area where if you hit it, you get a decent feel for the second shot. Mm. You can you it's 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 you see the top of the flag stick and it's a punch bowl green and you pretty much need to just get it over the, the bunkers uh that, that obstruct the, the view uh to have a reasonable birdie putt. Now if you hit it a little bit left of that or a little bit right, it goes down into these deep valleys that are cut as fairway, but leave you with a completely blind second shot. And it's um it's just 
totally different and bizarre. I did a little video of it. I, I need to post it because I ran from both sides of the fairway to show the views and and the blindness. And it's just uh, I, I don't want to over overkill the coverage um, on the national on my website. On the other hand, it's been 91 years since since golf was played there. And it, I'm afraid it'll probably be about that long again before they, they have another event. Not that they didn't have a great experience. Uh, it's just the, the club doesn't – I mean, what other event sh- – it, it's like there's really no other event the club should have. The Walker Cup's perfect for it and the atmosphere and the location. And, and I don't even – I can't really think of another event that would you would want to have there. It's almost just right for that. And uh, – so it was really special that the club opened its doors and they, they put on great ceremonies and uh, the setting is just uh, magnificent and the architecture, uh, yeah, everybody focuses on the replica holes, but it's I think his original holes are uh, are even better. And they're really not replica holes. They're, they're uh, inspired by uh, homages. Yeah, Tell us quickly the story of the uh, windmill shack. It's one of my favorites in golf. <laughs> Well, uh, it's it's I, I don't I I just read it the other night too. Oh really? Oh, I heard this story. Well, no, I know it, but it's I mean, if you want to, you probably can tell it better than I have. I'm gonna. I was just looking for my uh, Chris Millard wrote a great uh, story in the golf world, uh, U.S. a couple weeks ago. I and uh, kind of went through it and how um, the word. Uh, the one thing that I did not know, there's a plaque on the windmill. I'd always been under the impression it was just sort of this. Um, uh, guy said there should be a windmill, and CB said fine, and and sent him the bill for it. Um, and and so on the plaque, which I think I posted on my website, uh, there's a dedication uh, to uh, CB McDonald, uh, you know, great American or whatever, and and then mentioned autoc- called him an autocrat, and um, uh, it's just a it's such an iconic building on the golf course and you 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 can't take your eyes off it when you're out there which would probably explain why i took 400 photos of it uh, during the week Uh, i wanted to go in it but uh, i was very jealous one of the walker cup players on monday tweeted a photo from the top of it so they either sunday night or no it was a it looked like a daytime photo i think monday they must have had some little follow-up event and they all went up there and uh and kind of took the whole thing in so their experience was was pretty special what you, so the basics of the story was that one of the members, did they not, Shaq, said we should have a windmill up there. That would look fantastic. And it appeared sometime in the next 12 months, and then he just yeah. got, the, he got the bill for it. The member. Yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> just, yeah. And that was the kind of man he was. His $3,000 uh, bill you can pay for the windmill that you wanted up there. That's, and I actually got to meet somebody uh, last week at the Walker Cup who caddied for him, and uh, he was obviously a, a much older gentleman. And uh, I couldn't get him, though, to talk about what mcdonald was like i said was he was he a pain was he a nice guy to caddy for i was i was trying but because you see the photos of him and he just looks like such a such a pain yeah <laughs> he just looks like he was so difficult uh but he uh, was a visionary and he had a vision and to see it all come together like it did last week is uh it it was just stunning to see that combination of architecture and and beauty and the natural landscape and um yeah the course was not as firm and fast as they'd hoped they had a horrible rain but in a way the way the greens are so contoured so severely that 
it probably was a good thing they didn't get much faster. They would have been a little goofy. The The setup was not ideal. I thought the hull locations were way too difficult, which is, I think, why a lot of the matches were, why there were so few runaway matches. It was just very hard for somebody who got hot to separate themselves. Max Homa did it in one singles match, and but it was it was it was just uh, you had to play very conservatively. They did a beautiful job mixing up tees and yardages, but um, oh, and there's one other thing for state of the game. I have to tell this. So the, the, the second hole is this blind drivable par four over a hill, and uh, it's a fantastic hole. The windmill's on the left, and and uh, uh, you just want to get your drive over the hill and let it run. It's only 288, so uh, they can all they can drive it with irons, and they were on on Sunday. The the this, the uh, the Alps hole, the third. Mike Davis's one contribution to the setup was that he wanted it to to play as a blind second shot the way CB McDonald intended. So to do this, they would create. They would there was a little pad in the approach to the second hole that was a flat spot. So the matches on the second hole would finish out, they'd walk to the third tee, and the markers would be put down. The the observer uh for the next group would come and the forward observer pick those markers up, put them over in the rough when the next group came through, and then the another rules official would come and put the markers down and uh so you were essentially teeing off over the second green uh to get this effect that c b Mcdonald intended and the depressing part was how proud they were of this this solution to what is simply a problem of their own lack of regulation of of distance and every time I'd make a little crack to one of the observers or something, they go, isn't this a great idea? And I, I just took all my strength to go, no, really, it's not. You really need to just kind of do something about the ball. But I didn't want to be rude. It would be fun if that's how the course was designed, but you're quite right. because they've... Yeah, no, and it, it, it's uh, – but if they had played the tee that was about 30 yards below it, which is the back tee hmm. – they probably would have driven it up the side of the hole and had a view of the green, but you still have an obstructed view, and it takes a kind of a courageous play to play it up this area. And Portable tease clates, maybe that's the next. Uh... Uh, I'm just looking at a photo of that hole now. Those kids couldn't drive it up far enough to see the green on the third at the National? That, that was, yes, that was Mike's view, and I, I think he's correct. I mean, they all hit it. Clates, they all yeah. hit their three wood, 300 yards. And Actually, I shouldn't say that. Matthew Fitzpatrick, uh, who won the U.S. Amateur, yeah. uh, is not a long hitter at all. He's, he's a lot of fun to watch, too. He plays so fast. <laughs> he, yeah. he, I, I, took a, I, I followed him quite a bit and tried to take a lot of photos, and I missed several great shots because I, he, he, uh, he does take a lot of time. He, he, he does the arithmetic on every shot in his yardage book. He'll stand there, and he looks very very uh just just kind of funny in a, in a in a different way sitting there doing his math on his shot but yeah. boy once he pulls the club boom it's <laughs> he goes and it's it's such a pleasure to watch yeah a friend of mine caved for him in the british open had a great time duncan caved for him and he said ah he played with freddie couples the last round i said how was freddie he said he said freddie was more worried about the kids game than he's worried about his own game he said it was <laughs> just it was just tremendous for him he said you know, as I said, he, he said he, he was more worried about the kid. That's fantastic, isn't it? Which well, he looks nice like he's yeah. 12 years old, does, so you, yeah, you keep right. thinking that he's just so, so young, but he's not, and uh, he's 18, and he's going to be uh, – his swing just repeats so beautifully, and yeah. uh, and he'll fill out, and he'll he'll hit it a little bit longer, but it doesn't really matter. He plays 
Um, the course, I, I thought, although I, I thought he was, it was disappointing to not see the GB and I guys hit a few run-up shots. They, they kept playing at these, the, the problem with the setup was they kept using these back hole locations as if there had been four inches of rain and they need to go, they had to go to the high ground. Yeah. And so for match play, that got really tedious because nobody could really go at them. But Fitzpatrick did a few times and he got in, in just horrible trouble and, uh, and it ended up costing him in a couple matches, but uh, that was kind of the, the flaw of the, the setup, and uh, so it was a little surprising to see him do that. But in general, he's he's really a promising player. It's interesting, isn't it, Clay? To the last sort of thing I was thinking about this: wonderful to watch really good players on great golf courses. I can't wait for the two weeks we're going to have at Royal Melbourne at the end of this year, where we will just see you know quality golfer after quality golfer on what is you know one of the yeah. world's great golf courses. When the two come together, it's sort of special, isn't it? I remember Woods at Kingston Heath in 09 was just like yeah, it was a clinic. tremendous. It was, yeah. It's yeah. like a great violinist getting hold of the million-dollar violin, and when the two come together, they make wonderful music, don't they? And- hey, quick question on that. Have you guys heard, are they going to do anything to vary the uh, the two weeks to have uh, uh, present the, 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 the course a little bit differently? Uh, Clates would know better. I would think I don't know. I, constrained, I, wouldn't they, Clates? I mean, there's not much you could do, I wouldn't think. With I don't even know which par three they're playing. I, I'm assuming, yeah. Jeff, they'll go back to the uphill par three, the fourth east, not the 16th ah. east. But uh, you'll be pleased to know they've widened the second fairway by 30 yards, taken it back to where it used to be. So that's different. Oh, nice. the, that's much different from the President's Cup. Uh, and f- in fact, they've put a back tee in at the second hole now. So rather than playing that silly forward tee as a par four, they're going to play it as a par five. Oh, great. Um, it's a much better hole now than that, that terrible hole they had for the President's Cup. Um, no, I just assume they'll play the same course two weeks in a row. And, I mean, there'd be no time, would there, Clay? You finish on Sunday, there'll be practice rounds starting on Monday, you would think, for the World Cup. But, you know, I, I played yeah. there two, two weeks ago. The greens are incredibly hard and fast. Yeah, they rebuilt the... Well, they regrassed the greens. There's a new greenkeeper there. They've got them like bricks. So they'll be... Uh, you know, I think, Jeff, I know you bang on about it. And I think it's right. But there's an obsession with hard and fast and Royal Melbourne have headed that with Claude Crockford in the World Cup in 1972 was really the start of it and so you know there's a danger of going crazy with those greens there because getting them yeah. where you can't play them and you know you guys are paying the ball off the green and yeah. so, so I hope it doesn't get to that and the fact that they've got two tournaments in a row they will need to be that you know certainly the first week they'll need to be more measured about how they set it up but, you know, it's a great course, and it's certainly, you know, we talk about the National, and, I mean, Royal Melbourne's in the class of those courses, I think. Oh, I mean, and what an incredible year. We'll look back at this uh, 2013 and think, oh, my Lord, we were so spoiled. We had Mirfield Marion, National Golf Links, the Country Club for the U.S. Amateur, Royal Melbourne two weeks in a row. Uh, it'll it'll just uh, it, we're, it's oh and Conway Farms of course this week. On the of course, yeah, that, I, I forget. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes, we will indeed. Then we'd better wrap it up, otherwise it'll be 2014 before this show ends, and we'll have to start <laughs> yes. looking back. Fabulous to have you gents along as always. Really enjoyed the discussion with the rules guys, and really enjoyed the discussion about National Golf Links and some of that architecture stuff. Mike Clayton down here in Australia. Thank you. Thank you, Rod. And as always, Shaq over there in the States, a big thank you to you as well. Thank you, Rod. And that wraps it up for State of the Game this week. Do hope that you've enjoyed it, and you'll come back to join us again probably in about two weeks' time. We've got uh, some guests on the boil. We hopefully will get uh, one of them along to have a chat. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. 
State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.